0: Ecolution.
1: Welcome back. Ecolution keeps on going. We started this for RT on Climate, but we think it's a fight that we have to win. So expect us to keep talking about climate action in all its different forms on a weekly basis. If you've been enjoying the show, please do subscribe and ensure you get the latest episode the second it comes out. One thing that really helps is word of mouth. Well, that and reviews. So if you or your adults have been listening, let us know what you think. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or by emailing us junior at rte.ie. We've spoken before about eco-anxiety. That's when climate change feels so hard to deal with we want to check out. To not think about it. And it's not surprising. Sometimes the news can sound so overwhelming that it's all I can imagine doing. So many films are set during times of crazy weather. And all those images can get stuck in our heads. How the media talks about climate affects how we see the world around us. But there are other ways of confronting climate change, other actions that don't mean taking to the streets. We said in episode five, that we had to fight the problem from multiple fronts. And the written word remains a powerful tool.
2: Hi, my name is Patricia Ford. Uh, I'm from Galway and I write books for children. I write both in Irish and in English. And my latest book, Mother Tongue, is a sequel to The Wordsmith, which came out about three years ago.
1: Patricia wrote and acted from a young age. Words and story are at the centre of her life.
2: Well, in this world that's set in the future, um, then one community of people are left after the world flooded in a place called Ark. And in Ark, music is banned, art is banned... And the language of Ark is list, a list of 500 words. And they're the only words you're allowed to use. If you use a word that's not on the list, you get thrown into the forest to be eaten by the wolves. Um, So the people are very repressed. But the guy who runs the world, John Noah, he believes that we, in our time, ruined everything. We destroyed the planet and we did it because only we had language. So we're the only ones who can. I can take a thought today and put it in your head without a scalpel. I can just do that. I have that power. Uh, Cows don't have that power. Dogs don't have that power, but I do. I can speak. And John Noah believed that that was how we ruined everything. So because of that, he decides that we won't have access to language anymore. So we only have 500 words and they're very plain words. There are no words for emotion. There, There are no words for hope or love, or any of those things. They're all about tables and chairs and what you're having for your dinner. I don't think, I think I would go mad really quickly. Um, the strap line they, they used a lot for the book was how many words do you need to survive? Um, I think we need more words than that. We've never needed words, I think, as badly as we do at the moment. And interestingly, because as I said, I was bilingual, so I am bilingual. I grew up speaking Irish and English. And I saw with the Irish language that the list of words that I had as a four year old has greatly shrunk by now. So we don't use as many words. We've lost a lot of words. Uh, We've lost a lot of the language. So I think in terms of inspiration, that was very much in my head, trying to imagine how many words we would need in Irish to survive what will happen when we don't have enough words.
0: Letter shivered. The room smelt of paper and age and a touch of mustiness. Within it lay the precious source material, the fruits of the master's many word finding trips, where he searched painstakingly for any last remaining relic of the written word. Box upon box of tiny bits of language waiting to be sorted, transcribed, and filed. On one wall, a tattered banner hung from a nail, its words faded and worn. In the beginning was the word. Most people could read little, but rarely saw the written word apart from the odd poster with information from Don Noah or the little box of words from school. The sea had swallowed the written word after the melting. The very thought caused a shiver to ripple through her. For a second, she doubted the wisdom of what she was doing.
1: Letta, the lead character in The Wordsmith, is a rebel. A Greta Thunberg in a different world.
2: Letta is um, 13 or 14, I think, in the first book, and she is the wordsmith's apprentice. And because everybody in this world is allowed 500 words, but the way you get your words is somebody has to write them down for you. So in school, you get a box with 500 cards and you're taught the 500 words. Of course, they have no pens, they have no ink. So at the beginning of the book, she makes ink from beetroot juice. And I, I did check this out on the internet. And you can boil up beetroot juice and make ink. Don't try that at home. But you can do that. And she had sticks that she paired that she could use as a pen. And then in her own handwriting, she wrote out the 500 words for every person who needed them. And she's really happy in that world. She looks up to the guy who rules the world. You'll know at the beginning of the book, she thinks he saved us all. You know, he created this place. And okay, the 500 words rule is tough, but it's, you know, it's what we need to survive. And this we're going to have to do. Halfway through the book, she finds out that Noah's intention is far more evil than she first knew. And then she starts working against him because his ultimate goal is to remove man's capacity for language altogether. And Letta spends the first book trying to stop him.
0: The room was large and airy, shelves lined the walls on three sides, shelves that stretched way above his head, bending under the weight of the hundreds of books stored there. The fourth wall was covered with an old newspaper, yellowed and faded, but still readable. The room had become a shrine of sorts, he supposed, the books he had saved before the last days. He ran his finger along the spines. Shakespeare, Dickens, Keats, the ancients, all there alongside books from the last century. Nothing wasted, nothing lost. His private collection. He would find it difficult to let them go when the time came, but well, he would let them go. He couldn't risk them being found out at a later date. There are a few incidents where people managed to decode words after an Icene very few. Nonetheless, he wouldn't take that chance. They would be destroyed along with everything the smith had managed to salvage.
2: Letta believes really that she can do most things, she can manage the world she's in, even though she has moments of severe doubt. And I think that's really important for children to understand, that to be a leader doesn't mean that you have to be certain that you have to be, you know, unwavering it. You can have doubts and you can say to yourself, you know, I'm not sure I'm doing the right thing here and that's perfectly okay. That's how we all grow and how we all develop. So you don't have to be perfect to be a leader. But I think the world does need leaders now more than ever. And um, with children, they're as capable of leading their own crowd as anybody is. You don't have to be the most popular one. You don't have to be the best at sport. You don't be the brightest in the class to be a leader. You know, you just have to believe in something and feel it in your heart and that will persuade other people. And all leaders and all heroes still have doubts, still have worries and wonders. They're still human.
1: How do you think storytelling can help us deal better with difficult concepts or realities that are hard to face?
2: Well, I think particularly with children, we're inclined to think in stories. I talk to children a lot in schools and I say to them, you know, you're already full of stories. The story of how you were born, uh, you know, the story of your first birthday, the story of you falling down the stairs or losing your front tooth. All of those things are your stories. So that's our, I think that's what we're hardwired to do is to think in stories. So when I was teaching the children history or geography, I liked to frame it as a story. To take, you know, the basic facts and then dress that up a bit more imaginatively. Because I found, like medicine, they could take it better that way than straight, you know, this is what happened.
1: We all build worlds, playing with Lego, dressing up. And it's the imagining of
2: other possibly better worlds that might get us out of the current crisis. But when I was very small, when I was a child, we used to have to wash the dishes and we didn't have a dishwasher. I had five sisters and we used to wash the dishes and my job was to put away the cutlery, to dry the cutlery. And that was my first foray into world building because I started imagining that the forks were a clan and the spoons were a clan. And I distinctly remember the teaspoons were neutral because they were the babies for everybody. And I used to just play and play of having, you know, the forks, visit the knives and then there'd be a row. And and I didn't know that was world building, but that's what it is. It's just trying to, you know, invent another world. I often talk to children about this, you know, but, the, you know, for, for an activity to sit down and, and draw a world or build it with cardboard boxes, but start thinking about worlds and rules and who lives where and what are the laws, what's the religion, you know, and you can have a really great mind expanding time doing that. I mean, I'm imagining what's going to happen in 100 years, or maybe even sooner now. That's what I'm imagining in the book.
1: Eco illusion. Books are increasingly reflecting society, the things that happen around us. And right now, climate change is the number one issue we face. There was a time when our imagined future was bright and positive. Robots working for us, allowing us time to read and play. But the shape of our future feels a lot less certain these days.
2: I think it's very hard not to be influenced by the kind of Doom and gloom that we're hearing a lot of the moment, particularly about the environment and about the planet. Uh, you only have to watch David Attenborough and despair. You know that so quickly we're destroying so much. And I love people. I think human beings are great. I think they can do wonderful things. They're blessed with great gifts. But you can't deny that we're like parasites at the moment. Everybody else on this planet is just getting along with it, and we're out to kill it. You know, we seem to think that we are invincible that we can do anything we want and get away with it. And we won't. You know, we can't deny things anymore. We can prove what's happening. Um, like extinction, you know, so many species are becoming extinct every day now apparently four or t- five times more than, say, in the 1960s. The, the poor giraffe now, I think there's three species of giraffes now on the endangered list. And it's funny, at home where I live in Moycullen. we live in the middle of trees. And when we moved there first, every summer, we were eaten alive by midges. And I remember the neighbours saying, you know, don't worry about it because you have bats in your garden. They'll eat the midges. I thought, OK, good. They didn't really. There were still loads of midges. But in the last two summers, we've had no midges. And I suspect we don't have many bats either. And I kind of think that I often say to the children that I talk to, you know, first they come for the midges, then they come for the giraffe. You know, we, we, we're not taking any heed of the midges because we're quite happy to see the back of them. And we don't seem to realise that everything is interconnected. Once we lose one piece of that jigsaw, we're in danger of losing the whole lot.
0: He turned his back on the books and walked across to the wall of the newsprint. Here was a potted history of the past hundred years. The warnings, the signs, global warming... Water levels rising. It was incomprehensible. Even now, that man had just ignored it all. Young people talked about the melting as if it were a single event. But it hadn't been like that. The Earth had been heating up for years. His finger touched one of the news sheets. Scientists were warning of an alarming acceleration in the melting of the polar ice cap. They predicted a dramatic rise in sea levels that was back in the 21st century. He shook his head. He chose another article from around the same time. The writer was warning about the disappearing ice caps. Until recently, the Arctic ice cap covered 2% of the Earth's surface. Enormous amounts of solar energy are bounced back into space from these luminous white ice fields. Replacing that mass ice with dark open ocean will induce a catastrophic tipping point in the balance of planetary energy. Torrents of words had followed. Words from politicians assuring people that there was no such thing as global warming. Words from industrialists. He justified their emissions of CO2 into the atmosphere, words to hide behind, words to deceive, useless, dangerous, destructive words. He drew back his hand and punched the wall, hurting his knuckles and leaving a trail of blood on the yellowing paper.
2: The Wordsmith, my novel, is very much about climate change. It's a book that's set in the future, and in the book it says it happens, the story happens after the melting. I never say what the melting is, but when I talk to children, they get it straight away. They know the ice caps have melted, the sea levels have risen, all the things we're talking about. And the world really has been drowned apart from this one group of people. Um, And they have survived. But it's like writing an historical novel because they've survived without all the modern trappings. So there's no technology. There's no, um, there are no factories, obviously. They make their own clothes. They make their own shoes because they have to. In the book, when the characters talk about the past, they talk about the old language, which is our language. They talk about the past, they're talking about us. And they're marvelling at how ridiculously stupid we were.
1: How important is creativity in our world and in the world of art?
2: I wish all artists could go on strike for a week. And just let people see what what they take for granted every day. If it was all gone, there's no music on the radio, there were no books to read, there were no films, there's no television. People would see what art brings to them. But for the most part, we see it like wallpaper, I think, and we we just take it for granted. So in the book, art is banned in ARC. um, And I thought it was good for people not just young people, but for all of us, to think about a world where there's no art and what that would mean to us. Well, then all there would be is reality. There would just be the humdrum, the everyday. And we're far better than that. I think as creatures, we're far better than that. And we can, we can really fly. You know, the arts gives us wings. But I think we have to acknowledge that the arts need support and that we appreciate it and we want it in our lives.
0: ''No speak list,'' he said, and she could see the watchfulness in him. ''I know you speak the old tongue,'' she said. ''You've been talking in your sleep.'' ''Oh,'' he said, looking sheepish, ''did I say anything interesting?'' ''No,'' Letta said, ''mostly nonsense. But tell me, where did you learn to speak like that?'' She waited. He said nothing. Then she asked him the question that had been buzzing in her head during her long vigil. ''Are you a wordsmith?'' Mylar laughed. No, he said. Lol, I'm not a wordsmith. The people who reared me, many of them have good language, that's all. She stopped back, taken aback. Lol, sorry, he said. It means laugh out loud. L-O-L. See? My Uncle Finn taught it to me. It's an ancient expression that was handed down through the family. Laugh out loud, Letta said, mentally promising to write it down as soon as she could. Isn't it funny that they said it instead of doing it? I wonder, did they say cry bitterly when they were sad? They took up her twig and began to sweep the worn wooden boards.
1: We live on a planet where powerful politicians send out short messages on Twitter that could start wars. Words have huge power. In the world of ARC, people can only use 500 words. What happens when the words we use to describe our environment disappear?
2: A few years ago, the Junior Oxford Dictionary removed a whole plethora of words uh, from the children's dictionary, including words like um, cowslip and otter and bluebell. And they replaced them with words like hard drive and mouse and computer-related words. And when people gave out about it, the Oxford Dictionary said, all we do is track the language children are using. We didn't just decide to dump the primrose it was because children were no longer using that word. More often than not, they're using the word mouse. That would worry you a little bit because if we don't have a word for something, will we value it less? I think we will. I think if you don't know what a primrose is and somebody tells you, well, the primrose now is extinct. When you have no image, you have no thing in your head that says that's what that is. Children are really adaptable and flexible. And I remember myself reading as a 10 year old, if I didn't understand a word, I just skipped it. You know, I got the gist of what was going on. I didn't need to know what every single word meant. But because after a while I might be interested in a word, if it was repeated a few times, I might go to the bother of looking it up or asking mum or dad what did it mean. And I think we underestimate children. I think we kind of think they want it all easy and they wouldn't have any heed on that. But children are really interested in words. They like words. And I think we should feed that rather than saying, oh, well, that word's too big for them. They won't know what it means. Let's not put it in.
1: But do we kids have
2: too much pressure on us these days? Childhood is a sacred space, as far as I'm concerned. It it should be a protected space where you grow and develop without having to interact too much with the dark side of humanity. Whereas what I see now is that those young activists, particularly on social media, are being hounded by horrible people, uh, having to cope with stuff that they just shouldn't have to cope with. But I can see their point. You know, I talk to teenagers and they say, well, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? And certainly our generation didn't do it, aren't doing it. I think they look to the people who govern us and they worry that it's all talk, that there is no action behind it. So, yes, I think children do adapt. Um, And I think every generation maybe as well had something to rebel against, you know, had something to fight for, Uh, particularly when they get to 16, 17, 18. I think that's good for them to flex that intellectual muscle and say, you know, things don't have to be like this. We can change things. Uh, I just worry that they're being asked to change too much. I think uh, this is an emergency and we need people who have the power to intervene and do something and not leave it to 13 year olds to be out on strike on the street. That thing of democracy kind of being put on hold because we don't like what's happening. If there are people protesting on the street, well, let's roughhouse them off the street. Um, you know, there is no future in that. And I think history would show that there's no future in that. Um, sitting down and talking to people would be far more effective. Working together would be far more effective. I feel a fair bit of pressure to fight, to rebel. And I feel that I'm not alone. I think it's hard for children to rebel against society. I think it's asking a lot of them. But I think they have pester power. I see it in my own house. They have the power, you know, at home to say, no, we're going to recycle. Don't put that in that bin. They can help in a house to make a house more planet friendly. They can certainly do that. And, you know, society is made up of small bricks. If each small block did their bit, we wouldn't have had as much trouble as we have.
1: And we've said from the
2: start that we can be the change. I'm a great optimist. I don't think my world is going to happen, but I think we're very slow to take off. But I think we will take off. I think with with the young people doing this big push, they're being listened to now.
1: Like Patricia, I think we have to be hopeful. Reading about a future yet to come that has suffered the consequences of global warming could make us sad, but it also allows us to hear the warning
2: signs from a different perspective. And that is cause to hope. We're in a dark time now, but I think we will come out into the light again. I'm very hopeful. What they say in my book about how could they have been so stupid, I don't think we are that stupid. I think we're going to give ourselves a really good fright before we're finished because we're going to be late to the game. But I think we will pull it back. We have to. We have nowhere else to live. This is our only home. Ecolution! Evolution was produced by Nikki Kotlin for RTE Junior Radio.